Praise the Lord. What an awesome God he is. Praise God. If you've read the book, you know that we are on chapter 6. It's over. I'm the last one. So maybe sometimes they say the best to last. Who knows? <laughs> Praise God. But I am a church member. My name is Helen Steinman, and I am very privileged to be a church member. I will treasure church membership as a gift. It's a gift. God did not give us local churches to become country clubs, where membership means that you have perks and privileges. I don't know how many of you have ever joined or have been a member of a country club, but you do. You expect these things. You're out by the pool. They bring things to you, all of these kind of things. BC, that happened to me. I tell you, this isn't that. This is better. He placed us in a church to serve, to care for others, to pray for leaders, to learn, to teach, to give. And, if necessary, to give your life for the gospel. If you have a country club mentality, you will expect our pastor to feed us, you individually, with his sermons. Specify the acceptable range, the time that he's allowed to preach. The programs and the ministries are for our benefit. And we will determine what we like and what we don't like. We are members who expect perks privileges, and service if you have a country club mentality. But there's a better way. There's a sec second option in church membership. It's the biblical way. It sees membership as a gift, something to be treasured. Membership means we have the opportunity to serve and give rather than it just being a legalistic obligation that we have to do. Our entire attitude would change and be different if we would approach church membership the biblical way. Throughout the Bible, we see verse after verse that speaks of the gift of salvation, the gift of Christ's work for us, and the gift that means we cannot earn salvation even through our own works. When we receive the gift of salvation, we become part of the body of Christ Membership in the body of Christ, the church, is a gift from God to us. It's not a legalistic obligation. It's not a country club with perks. It is not license for entitlement. When we have an attitude of entitlement, that's a lousy attitude, isn't it? Don't you hate that, someone who has that? You owe me this. It's a lousy attitude. We're always looking for what we rightly deserve, and we get indignant if we don't get our way. But church membership is a gift from God, a gift that we should treasure, and a great joy and great anticipation. When we see life, salvation, and church membership as a gift, our whole perspective changes. We don't have the same sense of entitlement or expectations. On the contrary, we come to serve. When we walk through those doors, we're not saying, give me God. Give me, God, I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to this, so you better give it to me. When people say to me, I told God. That kind of bugs me. I don't tell God. Don't do that. I don't think he's pleased with that, so just kind of change your, your tone of voice possibly when you speak to him like that if you want to have something accomplished in your hand. All right. Church membership is a gift. 
at the end of each chapter of the book, if you read it, there is a pledge given. So I'm going to read the sixth pledge to you tonight, to this afternoon, with a few changes. It's very important. I am a church member. This membership is a gift. When I received the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, I became a part of the body of Christ. I soon was identified with a local church, was baptized with the Holy Ghost, spoke with tongues as the Spirit of the Lord gave utterance, was baptized in that only saving name, the name of Jesus Christ. I rose to walk in newness of life, and now I'm humbled and honored to serve and to love others in our church. I pray that I never take for granted this great privilege, but see it as a gift and an opportunity to serve others and to be a part of something that is much greater than any one person or anything. Why are we doing this? Why are we striving? Why are we wanting you to get off the bench, get into the program, be a church member so that you can be used in the kingdom of God? One of the reasons is this. Last Sunday morning as I was preparing my breakfast to come to church, just making my grits and toast, the Spirit of the Lord began to speak to me. And he said, it will be a day (laughs) just like today. Nothing unusual happening. Just another day. And I will come and catch my church away. (laughs) That's why. That's why you need to be a part of the body. That's why you need to get off the bench, get off the sidelines, and begin to express yourself in the kingdom of God. That's the reason he is coming. He is coming after a church that is not decrepit and old and sitting around doing nothing, but a church that is working and serving and loving and doing for the kingdom of God. I'm a church member, and I cherish it and love it. Please all stand. Thank you, Sister Steinman, and thanks to everyone who had an opportunity to speak to our church, but to the hundreds of people who love this church and have committed themselves to the mission of this church and would die for the message of this church. I thank you from the bottom of my heart because it's not just about being a card-carrying country club member but it is loving truth, loving Jesus Christ, and being committed to a local church so that Jesus Christ can work through you. In your Bibles, in the book of Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, I want to remind all of our guests today that in the foyer is a welcome center. We're happy for you to be here today if you've never been to a Pentecostal church where we express our worship to God in an exuberant way. Uh, Please relax. We're all regular folks just like you, and we're glad you're here to worship God with us. And I believe that before you go home today, that the Lord will do something very special in your life. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, now as he was going out on the road, 
One came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus, amen, said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he, this young man, answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at his word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, just a little bit lost. Just a little bit lost. You can be seated. (coughs) Little things often have large consequences, wouldn't you agree? January 28, 1986, Americans launched Space Shuttle Challenger for another soon-to-be successful launch, they thought. 73 seconds after liftoff, it broke apart, traumatic explosion, seven astronauts dead on the 10th mission of the Space Shuttle Challenger. One school teacher, Krista McAlfee, was there to uh, teach lessons from space to school children all across America. So all of those children, of course, were apprised of that and had the letdown of their lives. In the commission that was commanded by President Ronald Reagan, they studied the cause of the crash. And they determined that two rubber O-rings that were designed to separate sections of the rocket booster had failed due to cold temperatures on the morning of the launch. It turns out that they had been warned by the engineers that it was a possibility. Of course, there was extensive media coverage and NASA suspended the launch program for a while. The structural integrity of the shuttle and the ethical integrity of the space program was compromised by O-rings. Billions and billions of dollars lost that had been invested because of O-rings. The man Bruce Barton, who was an American advertising executive, politician and writer said, Sometimes when I consider the tremendous consequences or that, uh, excuse me, tremendous consequences come from little things, I am tempted to think that there are no little things. You may remember an old saying that was in Poor Richard's Almanac that Benjamin Franklin compiled. It was a story of a horse and rider going to war. But when they shoot the horse... They were not meticulous and careful and left out a nail. So he wrote, for the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. 
For the one of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the one of a horse, the rider was lost. For the one of a rider, the battle was lost. For the one of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want or the lack of a horseshoe nail. Little things have great consequences. Jesus said that if you take a little bit of yeast and put it into dough, it will leaven or raise the entire lump of dough. You can't have just a little bit of leavening, of rising. A little leaven leavens the whole yoke. I remember someone in my family saying that there is no such thing as a woman being just a little bit pregnant. You either are or you're not. I read to you a story today. It's kind of a perplexing story if you don't understand what's behind the words of Jesus Christ. Rich young ruler comes sliding in to worship Jesus, kneels down before him, asking the question that really is the most important question of life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. He knew he was a Jewish young man raised around the Bible. He knew what the Ten Commandments were. And so Jesus said, you know what the commandments say? Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not cheat or defraud, honor your father and your mother. And here's a guy that then kind of got excited and I think he was pretty animated when he said, Lord, I've I've done all these things since I was a, a young kid. I've done all these things from my youth. Now I want you to think about this in any culture. This young man was morally pure and had never committed an immoral sexual act. He had never taken an innocent life. He had never stolen, and on his resume, there was no police report. He never lied. He didn't shade the truth. He was a completely honest man. And he never cheated anybody out of anything, even though he was a very wealthy young man. He showed honor to his parents, He wasn't rebellious. Maybe he was taking care of them in their older years. Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now I want you to think about everybody that you know. Whether they're young now or not so young. And I want you to ask, did that young person, man or woman, measure up to how good this young man was? Can you say about all the young adults or now not so young adults, that as they grew up, they never committed an immoral sexual act. They never stole. They never lied. They didn't cheat anybody and that they were not rebellious against their parents. I mean, this guy is probably to everybody in the community and certainly to us, he's a model young man. And when he tells Jesus, I've kept all these things from my youth, Jesus doesn't refute it. He doesn't say you're lying through your teeth. He doesn't say you're almost right. He doesn't refute it at all. But he doesn't celebrate it. He doesn't pat this young guy on the back and say congratulations. You know, you are now the citizen of the month here in our city. He looks deeply into the soul of this young man. And Mark is very careful to say 
that the expression that Jesus had was one of love. He was not condemning, wasn't beating this guy up. He loved him because this was a young man that had so much going for him. But Jesus said, you lack one thing. Now, that may be shocking to you that somebody who is not sexually immoral, not a murderer, not a liar, not a cheat, not a stealer, just you know, respectful to his parents, but he's still missing something in his life. And Jesus tells him something that he really doesn't tell anybody else in this same way. He says to this young man, here's what I want you to do. I want you, if you want to be, get in the kingdom of God, go sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor. Basically, I want you to take a vow of poverty. And then you follow me, take up the cross, which is the test of complete obedience to the will of God, and you follow me. Now, you would think that a guy that had spent his whole life being that good would have said, sign me up for that. My record's pretty good. But the Bible said that this man was troubled, he felt sorry, and he went away because he had great riches. He was a very wealthy young man. And even though he had so much going for him in every way, there was something that he lacked in his life. You could say that maybe he was just, he was just a little bit lost. But when you really know what Jesus didn't say that he could have said, he could have said, you know, you've obeyed the second half of the Ten Commandments that have to do with human relationships. But what you are lacking is the first four commandments that you will have no other gods before me, that you will not make any idols, that you will not misuse the name of the Lord, that you will keep the Sabbath day holy. While you've been a perfect citizen, a gentleman, and son, you've not been a very godly follower of me because I, I hit at the heart of the one little thing that is really the biggest thing in your life. And for this young guy, it was... His money. That money was his God and he would not sell all and follow Jesus Christ. He went away sorrowfully. He was, he was just, you know, in his way of thinking, just a little bit lost. The book of Revelation is a book of prophecy, the last book in the Bible. But in the second chapter, there are seven addresses to seven churches of Asia Minor when Jesus Christ calls them into account and begins to address them with their strengths and weaknesses. And the first church that he calls is the church at Ephesus. Now the church at Ephesus got its beginning in a very dramatic way. Paul was preaching there. There were seven Jewish men who decided to use the name of Jesus Christ and cast out a devil even though they weren't really Christians. And when they called the name of Jesus Christ over that demon-possessed man, he jumped on them, beat them up, ripped their clothes off, and they ran out of the house naked and wounded. That was pretty bad. Well, when that happened, the Bible said there was a fear that came on people, and the name of Jesus was greatly honored, and many people began to be believers, and they confessed their sinful practices. In fact, in Ephesus... These people that had been sorcerers and followed witchcraft, they had books, incantation books. 
and they brought into a public bonfire several million dollars worth of witchcraft books and they burned them there when they turned to the Lord. And Ephesus broke out in revival. So much that pagan worshipers of the goddess Diana were turning to Jesus Christ. There was a guy named Demetrius. He was a silversmith and he made his living by selling little statues of the goddess Diana. And he went and stirred the city up and said, our craft is under threat. We're going to go out of business because all these people are becoming Christians and they're, they're walking away from all this sin and idolatry. And they got everybody so riled up in a mob action that they begin to shout in this theater that worship Diana. Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two solid hours. It was, it was crazy in Ephesus. That's Ephesus. And in the middle of that culture, there is a church. There are people who love Jesus Christ and Revelation 2 begins to address them. The Lord said, I know your works. You're a hard working church. I know your labor. I know your patience with all the difficulties you've been through. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. You don't put up with evil people. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them as liars. You are a truth-loving church. And you have persevered, and you've had patience, you have labored for my namesake, and you have not become weary. And later he tells them that they have no tolerance for the false doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This is a very good church. I mean, I can tell you, that I would take hundreds and hundreds of people who worked laboring for the Lord, were patient, were not tolerant of evil, ferreted out false prophets and exposed their lies, persevered through hard times and trials. I'll take a lot of people like that who love the Lord. But Jesus doesn't say, all that is good and that's good enough. Because in Ephesus... In their own mind, they were probably just a little, just a little bit lost. Jesus said to them, nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. Wonderful that you do all these things. But I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. You don't love me the way you did when you came to me. You don't love me like a brand new person who just felt the relief of sins rolling off of their life. You don't love me the way you did when you burned those books. You don't love me the way you did when I delivered you from your addictions and set you free from all of those pagan practices. You still love truth, but you don't love me like you used to love me. And he tells the church at Ephesus to remember from where you are fallen. Remember where you used to be. And he told them that they had to repent. Truth-loving, God-fearing, hard-working, faithful Christians had to remember and repent and return to that old place of passion for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you do not, I will come to you quickly. I will remove your candlestick that gives you the light of truth unless you repent. I mean, what in the world is that all about? 
when in my way of thinking, you know, maybe you would just say of the Ephesian church, they're just a, they're just a little bit lost, but not from God's perspective. The first king of Israel was a man named Saul. He was a really big, tall guy, head and shoulders, taller than anybody else. He was a very humble man at the beginning, kind of hid when they came to ordain him as king. And he, at first, is a good king, but he kind of gets into the largeness of his role. He's really affected a lot by peer pressure. Samuel goes to him and he says, Saul, I have a mission for you from God. Do you remember the Amalekites? They're the ones who stood in your way when Israel came out of Egypt. I want you to go to the Amalekites and I want you to destroy all of them. Men, women, infants, nursing children, all of their livestock, ox, sheep, camels, donkeys, kill them all. Saul gathers 200,000 footmen, 10,000 men of Judah. He goes and he attacks the Amalekites. And I don't know, thousands of them are killed. He has 100,000 men. Thousands are killed. He comes to the king, the man with the golden crown, and he captures him as a prize of war, a prisoner of war. And then his men are going into the, the ranches where the livestock are. And they start to kill all the animals as God commanded. But then they thought, wow, look at, look at that sheep. There, there's nothing wrong with that sheep. Look at that ox. Man, we, that would make a great ox. And the Bible says that they went in and everything that was good they saved. And everything that was just kind of utterly, you know, it's bad. Sick animals, poor animals. They killed them all. All the despised and the worthless. End of the battle. Saul washes his hands of it all. And then Samuel comes to meet Saul. Saul sees him coming. He decides he will start the conversation. And Saul says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You should be so proud of me. Samuel says, You know, that's funny. What am I hearing? It sounds like sheep bleeding, oxen lowing. What's the sound of all these animals? And, and Saul says, They... Brought them back from the Amalekites. We spared the very best so we could sacrifice them to God. Yeah, that's why we did it. That, that's my take on their motive. And the rest, we have utterly destroyed. I mean, we killed everything but the best. And Samuel said, Be quiet, Saul. Let me tell you what God told me last night. When you were little in your own eyes, God made you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission. And he said to utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord. Saul, tall Saul said, but, but I have, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission the Lord sent me on. 
And I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But, but the people took the plunder, sheep, ox, and the best things that should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Doesn't that all sound really good? Great? You know? I mean, he's just a little, just a little bit off. Samuel now prophesies to Saul. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does it mean more to God that you brought him all these animals to sacrifice than it would have meant to God for you to have just done what he told you to do? He said to, to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken or to heed is better than the fat of rams. That was that old Jewish sacrificial system. And then Samuel says this to Saul. For rebellion, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. He says to King Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. Saul, in his own mind, just a little bit lost. He could have taken you to all the bodies of the soldiers that they had killed. He could have taken you and shown you all the carcasses of the livestock that they did kill. But what he did not kill was the sin that wore the golden crown. The one thing that he preserved as a matter of pride. I've got this king and I'm going to parade him around like we always do. As all the other kings do. And prove that I've conquered his army. And here he is. And oh the animals you know. We're going to sacrifice him eventually to the Lord. Just a, just a little bit lost. Two times he tries to persuade Samuel that he has obeyed the voice of the Lord. But he has not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Isn't it amazing how we kind of find ways to navigate around the commandments of God? You know, kill everybody but the king. Kill all the bad animals. Keep the good animals. If the Lord came to me and spoke to me in an audible voice and he said to me, Daryl Johns, thou shalt not play golf all the days of thy life. I would say, man, I can do that because I don't really play golf. So really, no big deal to me. I'm not a golfer. But if God came to me and said, Daryl Johns, all the days of thy life, thou shalt not go hunting or fishing. Thou shalt not play with thy grandson. Whoa, wait a second now. You're getting really close to home if I can't be a grandfather. Because see, I, that's something I like. That's someone I love. And I'm good to go with anything you want to tell me as long as it's something that I don't really want to not give up. These three stories that I've told you today have a lot in common. Because with the rich young ruler, he has a lot of good going for him, but he's got this secret holdback 
this secret spiritual stash that says you get everything but my money. Because I love my money. The church in Revelation at Ephesus, man, we're going to work. You can count on us. I am a church member. But love you like I did when you saved me? No, sorry. I'm a little cooler than that now, God. I'm a, I'm a mature Christian. I don't get carried away with passion like I did when I first came to the Lord. I've cooled down quite a bit, but I'm, I'm, still, I'm still in there. I'm still a church member. And with King Saul, it wasn't so much that you spared Agag or that you didn't kill the best. I think personally, we don't know this, that it was a farce that they were going to sacrifice all those animals. I don't believe that was the motive of leaving them alive. It just tells you about human nature that says, whatever is easy for me to do, I'll do. But the thing that really challenges me about the Lordship of Jesus Christ is really where the rubber meets the road. It determines what a disciple really is. That's why Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell it all, give it to the poor, come follow me, take up your cross. If you want to know what discipleship is, it is always yes and never no. It's always whatever you want, God, and never I'll do anything but that. I was in Bible college. We were on a corral tour at the end of the year, and we're riding on the bus, signing one another's autographs. And I was signing the yearbook of a friend of mine, and uh, as I was signing the autograph, I had an impression from the Lord that was just like this, missionary. Maybe this person is supposed to be a missionary. So I just kind of filed that away and struck up a conversation. And I said, what are you thinking about doing when you graduate from Bible college? What, what do you think you're going to do with your life? And this person said back to me these words. I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but there's one thing I will not do. I will never be a missionary. I thought, oh, really? (laughs) Well, that person's not a missionary today, 30 years later, 30 plus years later. But it just struck me maybe God was just trying to tell me something about how we in our own lives rationalize God's will, but it's all mixed up with what we really want all along. And we just kind of salve our conscience by saying, and I am so much saved, and I'm just a little teeny bit lost. I know God would never make a big deal about something so small as that. When I was a, uh, a young man, my brother David and I were in the North Florida Panhandle woods. And our family was up there, might have been Thanksgiving time, and we went hunting. And we walked off into the woods. It's real sandy there or swampy, one or the other. And uh, we hunted. I think we were squirrel hunting. And we spent several hours, you know, walking in the woods. We didn't have a compass with us. We'd never been in this particular place before. And after we hunted for a while, uh, we decided we're going to walk back out. So my brother David had broken his arm. He had a plaster cast all the way up to here. This is Florida. It was the fall, but it was not that cold. And 
so David didn't have that good of a sense of direction back then, and I usually did. So we were discussing which way out. How do you get to the road? And I said this way, and David said that way, and he deferred to his older brother, and we went this way. And we walked this way. And we walked, and we walked. You know, my sense of direction is kind of on the line a little bit. I know we're going to get there eventually because how in the world can I be wrong? I've got this uncanny sense of direction. And we walked. And his arm was heavy in this cast and he was not all that happy. We finally stopped and I said, you know, I don't know, David. This is, is, you know, we're not getting there. I know we would have been to the road by now. So why don't we go your direction? And we turned and went the way he had told me he thought was the way out all along. And we walked into just a little ways, probably no more than a hundred yards. But before we got there, you could see this little white ribbon sandy road. We were paralleling the road, walking my way out. And and we were only about a hundred yards lost but we were a whole lot lost. And until until we changed direction, we were never going to get out. You've got to change direction. You've got to repent, change your mind, if you're ever going to find the favor of God in your life. Because there's no such thing, ladies and gentlemen, as being just a little bit lost. See, you notice my message today is not about everybody in the room. That's a whole lot lost. You're saying, man, that's great because you preach to me all the time. Everybody that's addicted and immoral and sleazy liars and terrible people, you got off light today. I didn't even preach to you. I don't worry about the people who know they're a whole lot lost because when you know you're a whole lot lost, you know you need a Savior and you don't trust in your own self-righteousness and you don't pat yourself on the back. You trust that Jesus has got to deliver you and forgive you because you're a, you're a whole lot lost. But the people that scare me are the really good people who have got a secret chamber of their lives that's locked away from God. No trespassing sign to God. People who justify themselves by saying, surely this wouldn't make a difference to God. I mean, he's he's such a big God. He's a compassionate God. I'm I'm just a little bit lost. You know, the... but. The Bible is a very narrow book. And people accuse Christians of being narrow-minded people. I just want to tell you how narrow we are. That Jesus Christ, God in flesh, said that the way to get to heaven is to squeeze through. He doesn't use the word squeeze. You've got to go through a skinny gate. The word in the King James is straight. S-T-R-A-I-T. In the Greek, it's stenosis. It means narrowing. Like the heart condition my 
youngest son was born with. Justin, I know what stenosis is. Jesus said it's a very, it's a little straight gate, a skinny gate. And when you get through the little skinny gate, guess what? It, it doesn't open up. It goes into a, a narrow way. But this narrow way happens to lead to life eternal. But there's a, there's a really wide gate and there's a broad way and it leads to destruction and many people go in there at. That's how it says it in the King James. People just go there. They just flow in there. It's the easy route. It's the obvious one. Everybody's doing it. It's okay. The culture says it's all right. How can that be wrong when so many people say it's acceptable now? Just just a little bit lost. But not really. Jesus had the audacity to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. If you don't come by me, you cannot be saved at all. So I'd like to ask you the question. Are you, in your own mind, a whole lot saved? In your own mind, just a little bit lost? And are you betting? I don't bet, but are you betting that God's just going to look the other way for the one thing that you lack? Or do you think that Jesus Christ will do to me and you what he did to the rich young ruler and to the church at Ephesus and to King Saul and go after the thing that we knew to do but neglected and were hoping that it was going to be all right? All the while telling ourselves, I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm just a little bit lost. Would you bow your heads please? Oh God, I pray today because I know what I have said, Lord, flies in the face of contemporary culture and the idea, Lord, that you're such a merciful, forgiving, and compassionate God. That it really doesn't matter, Lord, how we live as long as we're just sincere, as long as we just kind of go along and do the best we can. But, oh God, today I, I preach what you put in my heart to these precious people because I want the people in this room and watching online to be saved. I don't want the people in this room, Lord, to stand in judgment and say, nobody ever stood up and told me that God cares about total surrender. God cares about total obedience. That there's no such thing as being a little bit lost. I ask you today, oh God, to let somebody find you today. Whether they believe they're totally lost in their sins. Or they've sat smugly through sermons, Lord, thinking that they're all okay. Today, let this be an eternity-altering prayer service, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand? I would like to you to ask you to do a little self-examination right now. Not a lot of
patting yourself on the back. Not a lot of looking at somebody else through the magnifying glass and trying to make you feel better about yourself because of how bad they are. I'd really like to ask you today to just kind of take the mirror of the Word of God out and and hold it in front of yourself. Not a distorted mirror, distorted by postmodern culture, distorted by rationalization, but a real picture of where you are and who you are in the light of God's Word, in the mirror of God's Word. Because I doubt there's anybody in this room, including the guy talking right now, who can say, there's no area of my life that I'm a little bit guarded from God, but I want God to have full access to me. I don't want to go to hell thinking that I was just a little bit lost. So I'm going to open this altar area to prayer. And I want to invite you to come. And I wish everybody who's able-bodied would come and pray. Maybe bring your family or a friend with you. And whether you're a whole lot lost or just a little bit lost, lost is lost. And until you turn, you're never going to be saved. But turning to God is the key to everything. Asking God to forgive you of your sins and saying, Lord, I'm giving my whole life to you. And I'm not holding anything back, God. I'm not deserving anything from your Lordship. I don't want to be a little bit lost. Just keep coming. We're going to sing in just a minute, but I'm inviting you to come. The sobering message that the Lord has asked to be preached today, that it would shake you and shape you. Amen. That's right. Continue to come and leave room and aisles for people to come down front. What is the sin that wears a golden crown in your life? What's the livestock that you've left alive? Saying it's it's okay. I'm going to use it for God's purpose one day. This would be a great time for some repentance and complete obedience to the will of God. Would you just pray right now, everyone?